Hello and welcome to this vidcast which curiously combines asbestos and a Nobel Prize in economics, Bob Merton. A few days ago, end of January 2023, a court of appeals in Philadelphia will dismiss the claim which had been issued by Johnson & Johnson. JNG had created in 2021 a company ad hoc, LTL Management, in order to put all the complaints related to the sale of talc in this company. In talc there was asbestos, asbestos is causing cancers and unfortunately death. Soon after the creation of LTL management in 2021, a few months later, GNG put the company under the protection of Chapter 11 bankruptcy law the same year. Of course, the company is going to pay quite a lot of money about these claims. The company paid 4.5 billion in the past and probably for the decades to come, there will be additional amounts which might be quite substantial. According to the law of Texas, it's possible and allowed to create what is named divisive mergers. It consists in positioning the liabilities created by an issue somewhere in an ad hoc structure, in a special purpose vehicle. So you put the liabilities in a company and then the company is going to go bankrupt. As a consequence, you can protect the parent company from criminal issues. You are no more in front of a people's jury. And there will be also a kind of financial protection because you limit the amount of money which is going to be asked. This system has been widely used by industrial firms as far as asbestos claims were concerned. This legal system was widely criticized by the professionals of the law. A judge in Charlotte, North Carolina, simply said, this is a vessel. You define the vessel, you build the vessel, and then you sink the vessel. You put the asbestos liability into bankruptcy, and that's it. It's a kind of hijacking of the original mission of the Chapter 11. When you put the company under the protection of Chapter 11, what is the objective? It's continuation of business activity. You don't create a company to kill it three months later. So it's a kind of hijacking, again, of the original mission of the bankruptcy law. Now, I'm not going to comment all the legal aspects. It's a bit off topic. I'm not an expert. I am not legitimate to do that. But there is a very interesting financial perspective, which is to look at the Merton model in order to understand what's behind that on a financial point of view. Bob Merton is a prestigious financial economist. By the way, he's also the son of a prestigious sociologist. He very much looked at portfolios, portfolio theory, financial assets, derivatives, and among derivatives, options. He got the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1997, together with Myron Scholes, on option pricing theory. Fisher Black, the co-author of Myron Scholes, should have got the Nobel Prize as well, but unfortunately, he had passed away in between. Bob Merton contributed as an advisor to a hedge fund, AMC, created by Harry Markowitz at the end of the 60s. Markowitz, by the way, also got the Nobel Prize in economics for the portfolio theory and the very well-known Capham model. 
But then later on, together with Myron Schultz, Bob Merton created, co-created a fund, which is named LTCM. It was created in 1994. Unfortunately, a couple of years after they got the Nobel Prize, there was a really a problem. and bailout was needed $3.6 billion from the banking community to avoid systemic risk. So definitely it was a disaster. Now let's go back to the Merton model as far as the balance is concerned. Let's first have a look at the economic basis of. If you consider a financial balance sheet on the left-hand side, what do you have? You have an industrial project. You are constructing an industrial project which is named Capital Employed. You remember it's named Fixed Assets and Working Capital Requirement. Now in order to find that, you need to engage investors on board. Two kinds of investors, financial creators first, bankers, bondholders, and so on and so forth, and also the shareholders, which are basically the owners of the company. Each and every share is a title of ownership. Now let's do a little bit of accounting to illustrate that. Imagine that the cost of the project is 300. Capital employed is going to be 300. And then you are going to mobilize the investors. Creditors, financial creditors, agree to invest 100 out of 300. Then if you are the shareholders, you must contribute to the rest of it. 300 minus 100, it's 200. The initial balance sheet is obviously balancing. On the left-hand side, you see the cost of the business project, which is 300. On the right-hand side, the financial resources, thanks to which you can finance your project. Equity is 200. And again, financial debt coming from creditors is 100. Now, what is very interesting is how you are going to share the profit of the project once it's completed. Financial creditors, they do have a contractual relationship with the company. A debt is a contract which is signed by both parties. Then if there is a contract, there is a contractual remuneration. Let's suppose that it is 10% and forget about the calculation of it. The shareholders, you remember that their relationship with the company is ownership. We are the owners of the company. So we are remunerated with what is left after the stakeholders have been remunerated. Operating and financial stakeholders. So the result is what remains after the remuneration of the stakeholders. It's a residual remuneration. Let's have a look at what happens at the end of the project if everything goes right. The enterprise value is more than the amount of money which was invested in the business. So maybe you have invested 300 and one year later it's worth 400. You have created value. How do you share this value creation? First, the financial creditors, they receive what is written in a contract. So they get the 100 back and they get 10% of the 100 as a remuneration of the risk they have taken. So you provide 110 to the creditors. Out of 400, how much is left? Well, the value of the asset for the shareholders after creditors are paid is 290. The final balance sheet at the end of the project, one year later, is enterprise value 400. What is due to the financial stakeholders is 110. The cost of debt, the remuneration of the financial creditors is 10%. And as far as shareholders are concerned, they have invested 200, it's worth 290. So their return on equity is 45% for the year, which is absolutely great. Unfortunately, running the project might run to a kind of 
unpleasant surprise. You have invested 300, it's not worth 400, but 150. What do you do with the 150? First, you remunerate your financial creditors. They were expecting 110 by contract, they will receive 110. How much is left to the shareholders? The difference between 150 and 110? I mean, 40. So you understand that the financial balance sheet is also balancing. Enterprise value is now 150. What is due to the financial creators is 110. And their return on investment is 10%, which is the contract. For the shareholders, it's a completely different story because they have invested 200. How much is left? 40. They have lost four-fifths of the value. The return on shareholders' equity is minus 40%. That was an unpleasant surprise, but the surprise might be very bad. In this case, the enterprise value is less than what the creditors are expecting. Let's assume that the enterprise value is 80, and what is due to the creditors is 110 then what's going to happen? It all depends on the responsibility of the shareholders. If their responsibility is limited to their contribution, the amount of money they introduced in the balance sheet, the 200, then the creditors are going to receive 80 against the extinguishment of debt. The debt does not exist anymore, and the financial creditors, they receive 80. If the responsibility is indefinite, then the creditors are going to say, we take 80 out of the enterprise value, but we expect an additional 30 coming from the shareholders. They are in charge, they are responsible, they are accountable, and then the financial creditors are going to receive 110. So you understand that there is a very big importance of the legal nature of the firm. And there is a huge impact as well on the risk allocation. Everybody who has been involved in project finance knows that risk allocation is of utmost importance. In one case, for the shareholders, the responsibility is limited to what they bring. In another case, they are indefinitely responsible. That completely changes the picture. Now, let's go back to the option pricing theory, which is a, a Nobel Prize for Bob Merton and Myron Schultz. What is an option? It's a right. It's not an obligation. It's a right which you can exercise or not to buy or sell, call option, put option, an asset, at a price which is agreed in advance and at a date or before the date, which is also agreed in advance. Now let's have a look at the picture. The shareholders, they own the assets. They have the right to sell the assets to the financial creditors against the extinguishment of the debt. They have the right and not the obligation. And of course, they are not going to be exercised as right if the value of the asset is greater than the extinguishment value of the debt. So they exercise the right when it's 80. They don't exercise the right when it's 150. The model which is proposed by Merton is shareholders, they hold a portfolio. Not just the asset, but there is a put option which is linked with the relationship they have with the financial creditors. Of course, the objective is not to exercise the option. They speculate. They would like to observe an increase in the value of the asset. This is their aim. This is their objective. But just in case it doesn't work, and it's a very 
difficult situation, then you exercise the put option, which can be regarded as a protection, an insurance. The premium of the option is the insurance premium. But if you hold an option, it means that somebody sold the option. Who sold the option? The creditor. And by the way, the option pricing theory is a very strong support for bankers to calculate the premium. They calculate the premium for the risk, the probability multiplied by the loss in case of default. They add their administrative expenses and their expected return on equity, and it gives you the interest rate. Now, this model is valid if and only if the risk is absolutely limited to the contribution for the shareholder's perspective. A few technical comments around that. Of course, the shareholders do not want to exercise the put. Their speculation is upside value for the assets, but they have a protection in case of the downside. What is very interesting is to observe that this is a kind of profit and loss profile of a call option. So on an economic point of view, they have a call option because they hope that the value of the asset is going to be up and if it's down, they don't exercise a call option and they lose the premium. So you understand that they are in an economic situation of a call, but in fact, they hold a put. You remember those of you who studied options, this is named the put-call parity. If you hold an asset plus a put on this asset, it is exactly the same as holding a call on this asset plus holding a government bond, which makes a balance on a finance point of view. There are multiple applications of this model. The one which I would like to mention is the fall of Bearings Bank. You remember, maybe, in 1995, the chief trader at Bearings, based in Singapore, speculating on the Singapore Mercantile Exchange. The losses generated by the trading activity eventually led Bearing Banks to bankruptcy. The theory which was explained at that time is that it's just an accident, lack of control, and so on and so forth. I would like to suggest you a kind of alternative to this. According to some rumors at that time, Bearings was not doing very well. The performance was poor. And it might be that the bank was relying on a trading activity which they were not very well understanding in London to recover its financial performance, to improve its profit. And so they were betting on the fact that, thanks to the trading, they would recover from losses. Let me give you an example to support this thesis. Imagine that for a company, the enterprise value is 80. The creditors are expecting, contractually expecting, 100. You understand that the company, the firm, is virtually bankrupt. Now, somebody inside the company is proposing a project. There is a 0.5 probability that it works, and there is a 0.5 probability that it doesn't work. If it works, then you gain 40. If it doesn't work, you lose 40. So you understand that the mean is 0. 0.5 times 40 plus 0.5 times minus 40. And the risk, the standard deviation, the variability of the project is 40. Do you create value investing in an asset whose value is 0 plus minus 40? The answer is no. The project is value destroying. Still, the project is going to be accepted. Why? Because if the project works, then the value of the company is 80 plus 40 and it does not go bankrupt. If the project is absolutely not successful, 
the net asset value is not minus 20, it's minus 60, but between quotes, you don't care because this loss of value is not for the shareholders. It is at the detriment of creditors. So you understand that the model, which is designed by Merton, makes you understand, rationalizes a value-destroying project. Now let's go back to Talc and to JNG. The optional analysis is absolutely relevant because when you put a company under Chapter 11, it is simply about exercising the put option, which is in your hands. You have to add plenty of legal aspects, which I am not going to develop for the reason I mentioned before. But what is very interesting is the Merton model works perfectly, but it's valid if and only if the responsibility of the shareholders is limited to their contribution. What did the Philadelphia Court of Appeals do? The court simply destroyed the option. It destroyed the option because it replaced limited to indefinite responsibility. The option does not exist anymore. The Merton model belongs to a nice world, which is named real options. It's an extremely powerful concept with plenty of applications. The Merton model is one of them and there will be plenty of opportunity in the life of the academy to illustrate the concept of real options with different situations. Thank you very much.